0: You might already know, but just out of curiosity, how many of you know what today is as far as a holiday? What is it? Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday. Do you guys, do you guys know what Pentecost Sunday is. Now, if you do, that's awesome. Like you, you are above, and you are an above average student of the Bible, which is you know, good job, good job. Um, if if you don't, that's okay as well. You, we're all disciples, we're all learning, we're all trying to figure this whole thing out as well. Um, what I want to do today is I want to talk a little bit about the subject of Pentecost. Um, I've said this before, but Pentecost is probably the least recognized, so if you don't know, that's okay, you're part of the normal warp and woof of, I think, American Christians that are probably within the evangelical camp that are just not aware of the significance of this. So I would say it's the least recognized, but probably most important of all Christian holidays in uh, representing something very significant. So most of us, as Christians, we tend to obviously focus on Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, or Christmas, the birth of Jesus. Um, very few of us oftentimes are well aware of the significance of what today is about with regard to Pentecost. So I thought it would be a really good teaching opportunity to really kind of pause, reflect, think about this. It's such an important um, idea and passage that Jesus himself would have no doubt celebrated Pentecost. He actually invited his disciples, followers, to celebrate Pentecost uh, with a special twist. Um, we also see Paul in the book of Acts. It's described as something that Paul himself was making his way in one of his missionary journeys back to Jerusalem. His hope was to get there back in time for Pentecost. So this is a really important thing that, again, like I said, for most part, we have kind of drifted away from the significance of that. I hope to kind of do my little part of undoing that and maybe inviting you into something really significant and powerful and life-changing. So I know those are big words and uh, tall order, but my hope would be to at least get halfway there. So if I can do that, that'd be great. So let me pray real quick, and we're going to get to work looking at the subject of Pentecost. And then next week, we'll be back into the teaching of the Gospel of John. So let's pray get to work. Jesus, we ask you right now, would you just open our hearts to all that you have? Um, God, give us eyes to see who you are, who you truly are. Give us ears that are quick to not only hear, but truly listen and perceive and understand. And God, let our lives be truly changed and transformed by who you are, what you're doing in this world. Uh, we thank you for drawing people together here to get together this place this morning uh, to celebrate who you are, what you're up to in this world, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so I want to do a quick little intro here because uh, there are at least three major feasts that all Jews prior to Jesus coming and Jesus, including Jesus Himself would have celebrated. So we already know one of them is Pentecost. You guys know what the other two major holidays are celebrate celebration days are and we'll take a stab in the dark so like audience participation what passover. passover right all right good job another one what's that so i'm sorry david Toman. that's a good one that's that's pretty high up there but i would say there's another one called anybody i thought i heard someone say it tabernacles did anybody say tabernacles anybody call that it's called Sukkot. So it's a time when they go out and they get in tents and they all kind of hang out. It's kind of like camping trip in your backyard. It's a way of remembering what God has done in terms of carrying the people of Israel. Uh, and all of these are means of attaching themselves to their history. Um, and I've said this before that, um, in, we, you know, we live obviously in America, specifically in California, and California has been going through a massive, I've been saying this for several, you know, years now, but a massive, uh, revival, secularist revival, not a Christian revival, not an evangelical revival, but a secular revival. And part of the secular revival that we've been in the midst of over the past 30 or 40 years has been an attempt to sort of uh, stave off any type of connection with the past or history or tradition. And so there's a tendency, I think, it can be in the water that we drink, the way that we think, uh, that there's this tendency to kind of pull away from or to not want to re-engage uh, various forms of our history or tradition. And I would say that's that's not good. That's not healthy. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not what followers of Jesus are all about. So I think as followers of Jesus living in this state, in this city, uh, number one, it's important, I think, to, at least to be aware that that's the culture that we live in. That's the water that we're swimming in. Um, and number two, make sure that as we find ourselves in that place that we don't get swept up into that, that we... Keep ourselves tethered to our historical moorings. And part of that as a follower of Jesus is to recognize that we are part of this long historical tradition of people that have been faithful to God. And part of that has been to consistently remind themselves of who their God is, what their roots are, what their family of origin has kind of uh, delivered to them by way of legacy. And this is what Christians have always done from the very beginning. Uh, Jews prior to that have always done the same thing. Uh, so, for example, Passover is a time of remembering. Again, you can talk generations and generations later, but they would celebrate yearly uh, this way of reminding themselves that God himself interacted on their behalf in an ancient civilization in Egypt and set the people of Israel free. This is their way of reminding themselves who we are and to whom we belong. And As a culture today that has kind of completely detached itself from our historical background, it's one of the reasons why I think very clearly we live in a culture today where people don't know who they are. We literally have an identity crisis. I was listening to a recent guy that's running for president. One of the things that he was saying as a part of his actual campaign is to say, I want to kind of go to the soul of what America has, has lost sight of or touch of with regard to who we are, identity. So it's interesting, even for him, he's describing this idea of there's been an identity crisis. We don't know who we are anymore. We need to reattach ourselves to this historical value and story. And what's replaced in our culture today is this idea of you get to craft your own sense of your future. You're in charge. You're the one. No one else has authority over you. If anyone ever tries to Uh, exercise any claim over you, that is an oppressive power play to be rejected. And I would suggest to you that as Christians, like we have a conflict here right now. Because either we buy into the culture that's preeminent in our world today, that says every historical claim over you is a power play, or as Christians we say, no, actually a historical claim over us is our path to freedom. It's massive, massive distinction for us to be invited into, to craft our lives around. And I would suggest to you Passover and Sukkot and Pentecost that we're going to be talking about here today are ways of reframing our lives around God's work of redemption in our lives. So there you go. That's my quick little introduction. So what I want to do, as far as a question, I want to ask specifically, what is the Feast of Pentecost? There's a little thing, just and as simple as it can be, it's a harvest party. It's a harvest party. Harvest celebration. And it marks literally, it gets the word Pentecost, is the word five, it comes from uh, the, the, the word fifty. Um, fifty days after Passover, uh, the people of Israel would kind of find themselves coming into summer. And it was a way of kind of remembering God, had not only anchored them and tethered them to this historical event of the Passover, but as they move on into the summer, they begin to recognize, hey, our crops are beginning to come in. We've Our tomato plants are filling in. Our wheat plants are filling in. All of this is amazing. God's providing. We've had rains that have come through. You know, uh, Israel is very similar climate-wise as California. So they had all the rains of April and May and all that prior to that. They planted their crops, and now the crops are starting to come in. And this is their way of basically saying, We're so grateful for all that God has given to us. We're going to come together and have a big party. So therefore, it's a harvest celebration or a harvest party. But there's a handful of different things that it would also commemorate. So this is important, too. This kind of ties everything into this historical background. So there's at least four different things. And then the the fourth one, I should say, is the one that we're going to really be focusing on today. So first of all, it ties it into this idea of first fruits. So this is a celebration of God's faithfulness and providing a harvest. Um, ...traditionally and historically, Jews would actually read the entire book of Ruth. It's not that long. It's like four chapters, and you can probably read it in like 15 minutes. It's pretty short. Uh, this was customarily read because it was a way of reminding themselves... ...that it's a story of a person who is an outsider. Um, they had really nothing to do with the Jewish community... Um, other than a marriage that ultimately ended in death. And so, therefore, it's a story of this person, Ruth, who gets brought into this community of God's faithful people, even though she was an outsider. And they would read the story of how Ruth, and she, she's significant because she ends up becoming, I think it's the great-grandmother of David, King David. So it's a very significant, important story that would be read during this time. Uh, another thing that Jews traditionally do, even to this day, is they will eat a lot of cheesecake, which is kind of funny. Like, cheesecake, why? Well, think about it. Cheesecake is what? It's sweet, milky dish that's delicious. What does it have to do with it? Well, sweetness, milk, and honey. Milk and honey. It's a way of reminding themselves we belong to God. God has brought us into a land of milk and honey. God is the one who is the operative term here. God has done something on our behalf. So this is our way of celebrating God. So therefore, you can go ahead and eat cheesecake and just look at it as an act of divine love and worship and devotion to King Jesus. So there you go. Amen. Amen. So the next thing is that not only commemorates the... Uh, Feast of first fruits, but also the Torah. This is also significant. If you want to look this up, you can look up Exodus chapter 19. It actually describes it when the people of Israel came out of Egypt. Again, that would have been the Passover. Um, some 49, 50 days later was when God summoned Moses up to Mount Sinai. I'll just read a little snippet of this for you so you can kind of get the flavor of the historical value of this. It says that when God called um, Moses up to Mount Sinai, it says Mount Sinai was wrapped. Now listen to some of these key factors that are being played into the story here. Um, It says, Mount Sinai is wrapped in smoke as the Lord descended on it in fire, pillar of fire. And the whole mountain trembled. There's an earthquake. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai and called Moses up to the top of the mountain. And as Moses goes up, there's other forms of descriptions. Wind is blowing. Fire is coming down. The earth is shaking. It's really important details for you to just make note of. Because, again, this is a day of remembrance, it reminds them God gave the Torah, the divine law from him to Moses. So this is an important moment in the people of Israel's history. This idea of a column of fire also plays out in the story of the tabernacle, um, but also in the story of the temple. Later, the tabernacle is kind of like this um, mobile um, temple that would have been one day built with brick and mortar at that point throughout the journey of the wilderness. It was in a tent, but either way, um, God came and Marked his presence over that by having a pillar of fire over that particular region. So, number one, first fruits. Number two, Torah. Number three, um, traditionally believed to be the time of King David's death. Again, this is just sort of a tradition that sort of was formulated around the life and death of King David. And then lastly, what I really want to focus on here is this idea of the outpouring of God's Spirit. This is what I think most significantly for you and I, ...as followers of Jesus can identify and think about with regard to this time of Passover... ...the outpouring of God's Spirit. So with that, what I want to do as we read the story... ...we'll look at this, I'll pick it up at Acts chapter 1... ...we'll jump into mainly Acts chapter 2... Um, ...this story of Pentecost in Acts 2 can look a little strange. Strange things are happening... ...but I hope that by seeing what happened on this particular day on Pentecost... ...within the larger scriptural narrative... It will bring some degree of clarity and hope, um, I think, transformation to our lives as we really understand what God is actually ultimately, I think, inviting us into. So I think of Luke as not just so much a historian, uh, or not so much as a news reporter, but as a historian. So he's not just simply recording facts and details. He's the author of the book of Acts. But he's also trying to make connections of the story, of what he's observing by way of like report, uh, with historical account of what God has been doing throughout the people of Israel's history, ultimately as a way of saying, here's who you are. In other words, identity. And here's what you're called to. In other words, mission, purpose, idea. Again, I think this is such a timely and important message for our world today that for the most part is lost in its sense of identity. Who are we? We have no idea. Um, we go shopping around for identity as much as we can. What are we supposed to do? I have no idea. Scroll on our phone all day long. No, because that's boring. What should we do with our lives? Well, the Bible very clearly and by way of Pentecost gives us not only a sense of who are, who we are identity, but a sense of mission and calling as to how we can be living our lives that really bring forth a deep sense of meaning and purpose, uh, in our existence. So, with that being said, i want to jump right in. We'll take a look at Acts chapter 1. I'll read a couple passages in verses 4 through 6, and then we'll skip on down to Acts chapter 2. All of these will be up on the screen. You can write them down if you would like. Here we go. It says, Jesus ordered his disciples. Now, Jesus had been resurrected now for you know, handful of days, several weeks now, Jesus, we're told that after he died, was resurrected, we celebrated that on Easter, he went, basically went around throughout the region of Judea and Galilee, and he just did what he'd always been doing, he talked about the kingdom of God, he was inviting people into the work that he was up to, which is phenomenal in and of itself, that Jesus, post-resurrection, is still like doing the same stuff that he'd always been doing. And at this particular point, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that were witnessing the fact that Jesus was dead, but is no longer dead. He's alive. So that begins to become a clue for us what Jesus is inviting us into. That whatever it is that he's inviting us into is something that transcends death. It's Think about that. Think and take a little bit of an assessment of your life. What are those areas in your life right now that are marked by death? where death has its mark, where death has left a stain, death has caused pain or grief. What are those areas that you might look at and say, there's no way life can come beyond this. There's no way there's any form of animation after what's been going on in this particular situation of your life. What the hope of the gospel is, it invites us to see things, not with death as being the end, but death is being something that Jesus, by way of divine power, can basically reanimate and bring forth into something brand new, totally unexpected, something absolutely beautiful and good. So Jesus is cruising around, hanging out with people, talking with him about the kingdom of God. And it goes on to say, he tells his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. It says for John Baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jump on down to verse 6. And when they came together, he asked, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons of the Father that he's fixed on his own authority, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when he has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, uh, at this particular juncture, they're kind of wondering, is this the time of the great, like, Ascendancy of the king. Are you going to become king? And are we going to continue to like rule and reign on your left and your right hand? So in other words, their understanding of what was happening here was still a little bit skewed. It was still a little bit tilted towards their own false understandings, their false notions. So what Jesus does is he gently corrects them and says, It's not for you to know about all this, but what you are invited to do is to just trust God, even though you might not have all the answers. I think this is a great way to think about the Christian life. Christian is not someone that has all the answers. It's important for us to try to understand things. So I'm not going to say constantly just suspend your thinking abilities. No, think critically, think carefully, but also recognize you are going to be limited in terms of all that you're going to be able to understand. But what we are invited to do is to trust Jesus, to look for his empowering presence in our lives and to step into all that he calls us into. And This is what Jesus is inviting them into. He says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And so, what I think he's describing here very clearly is that I'm calling you to testify, to bear witness of the life that I've given you. And every Christian, this is not the job of just like certain elite group of like ninja level Christians, people that have ascended to like, you know, Powerhouse status of Christianity. This is everyone. If you are a follower of Jesus, every single person in this room has been given and gifted grace from God by way of the Holy Spirit, power, which we'll look at in a second here, to be able to live into all that God has. All of us are called witnesses. Now this is, this is a noun. This is a noun. It's important to know this because sometimes we think of witness as being an action. It can be. We, we think of people going down to downtown and waving a sign that says Jesus is coming back soon or you're going to go to hell or whatever sign that oftentimes gets made out there on people's billboards as they go down and witness. But the point that I would make is what I think Jesus is inviting them into is like, no, this is who you are. You are a witness and you are called to bear witness of me and what I've done in your life. So this this is significant. Every one of us in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a story and your story matters. It's your own unique story. It's unlike any other story in this particular room, and that story has impact and value that God wants to use. Now, again, I realize we deal oftentimes with the sense of, you know, insecurity or fear or we lack courage and whatnot. But the point of the matter is, is that God invites us by his power to trust him to step into all that he calls us to do to do. And again, it might look differently for all of us. Some of us are bold and we like to talk and some of us are not so much that way. And we just have our own little story. And sometimes we might even look at our story and think it's a little bit insignificant. But at the end of the day, your story is your story and your story of redemption matters. And God will use that. You just got to recognize where he wants to use that and ask him to give you the power to be able to do that. What Jesus then goes on to say is that you will have this power beginning from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And I think this is Jesus' way of saying no one is excluded. This is beautiful. The Christian message is literally for the whole world. Christianity is not necessarily linked to a particular people group. I know there's a lot of conversation today that Christianity throughout the world, is really nothing more than a white man's colonial-styled religion. And I would gently push back and say, that's completely false. Christianity began in Israel. It began with Jewish people. It began with people that were from that part of the world that spoke an entirely different language than us. It may have made its way into and throughout European countries and then circling back, but the point of the matter is Christianity has this long, vast, Historical background and backstory that's really powerful, and it is for the entire world. And for the first followers of Jesus, they've truly wrestled with this. They didn't know what to do with people that were non Jewish. So, when non Jewish people started coming to faith in their Messiah Jesus, they were tripping out. They're like, We don't know what to do with you guys. They're like, We don't know if we should circumcise you, which is kind of weird look it up. It's kind of, imagine being like 35 years old and being like, we want you to get circumcised. You're like, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus anymore. If that's what I got to do. Like, that's a painful process. So it's like, you know, you got to eat a certain way. Like, that's kind of hard too. Cause like, that means no more bacon and no more ham sandwiches and no more cheeseburgers. And like, again, that's a hard thing. Like, I don't want to do that. But if that's what it means to follow Jesus. And again, early Christians, they didn't really know what to do with non-Jewish people. And that led to all sorts of debates and discussions and whatnot. But at the end of the day, what they end up coming back to realizing is that salvation or God's favor is shown to all human beings. Irregardless of whatever culture they come from. So this is, this is, this Christianity is a massively inclusive and beautiful invitation from God. Not just to just remain as we are, but to be brought into the kingdom of God. It's his kingdom. It's not our kingdom. It's his kingdom. That means he has values and core ideas and core understanding of the way life should be lived. And what it means to be a disciple, it means to say, God, whatever your values are, I want to be my values. Whatever things that you deem worthy and important, I want those to become deemed worthy and valuable and important in my life. Whatever things you call sin, I want to call sin. It doesn't matter what my preferences are. It means resetting my preferences and my life story around King Jesus. This this is the basic understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But again, radically inclusive. It goes to all people, no matter who they are, no matter where they live, no matter what color of skin. And then skip on down to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and read a handful of passages here. And I'll finish up with some final summary thoughts. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, today, 2,000 years ago. They were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then, there were divided tongues of fire that appeared to them. And it rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, again... Reading Luke, not just as an eyewitness, but also as a historian, what's he doing here? He's drawing direct parallels to the Exodus story. Wind, shaking, fire. What's happening here? This is Luke's way of saying, hey, the very power of God, the presence of God that resided over Mount Sinai, that resided over the tabernacle, that resided over the temple, that is bringing life that's reclaiming certain territory saying this is mine this belongs to me this is my zone my spot this is god this is luke's creative way of not only analyzing what's happening but also connecting so for you and i as readers 2000 years later we're able to draw these connections and realize that god is very profoundly clearly trying to send a signal to us of his presence Verse 5, it goes on to say, there were dwelling Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound of the multitude, they came together, and they were all amazed and bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, telling of the mighty works of God, and some of you may be familiar with the whole idea of speaking in tongues, and some of you may have come from backgrounds where that just absolutely freaks you out, um, but here's the reality, is that whatever is happening here, and again, scholars are divided over exactly what this means. Were people actually speaking in other languages? Were they understanding others speak in other languages? And they were all able to understand one uniform language. The big idea that's going on here is that during the time of uh, Passover, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Pentecost, there were hundreds and thousands and thousands and thousands of people from all around the diaspora being brought back into the region of Jerusalem for this time of year. And they were all celebrating. So they brought hundreds of different types of cultures, languages, uh, ways of speaking, ways of living together. And what you have here in this particular setting, in this particular moment, is everyone is able to hear uniformly. Whether, again, they're speaking uniformly or they're hearing uniformly, the point of the matter is there is a cognizant understanding of whatever is being spoken is the wonderful praises of God. And we call that glossolalia, or speaking in tongues, and that seems to be what's going on here. In other words, another way of thinking about this. What happened in Babel, where God divided the language, is being undone. When? How? Where? The Spirit is bringing forth a whole new form of unity that's never been seen on planet Earth before. In other words, God is doing something brand new. Peter would later go on to say, uh, verse 16, he says, God he stands up and he begins to speak. God says, God spoke through the prophet Joel. So Peter links this uh, obscure uh, passage from the Old Testament, from the prophet Joel, to what's happening here in this particular moment. He says, in this last days, it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And I think this is Peter's way of just clearly articulating what's happening here, what's taking place here, has been long part of God's story. But you're in it right now. I mean, think about that. Think about how we live our lives, where we long to be part of something significant. We long to know that our lives are worthy of something. And this is Peter's way of saying, look, what is happening right now has been foretold hundreds of years ago. And you're living in the midst of it right now. And the reality is, is you and I today that are responding to the work and the grace and the love and the kindness and the generosity of Jesus are swept up into the same story. And you might say, oh, "I doesn't feel like it. And this is one of the reasons why we pause yearly in this cadence to remember Pentecost. It's a way of reminding ourselves of what God has done. Why? We, we all got amnesia. We are all prone to forget, all of us, all of us find ourselves in that place. So this is a way of realigning our imagination, our understanding in terms of who God is, who we are, what God has called us to. So in conclusion, what I want to just recap on and think about, the Pentecost actually reacquaints us with these three major aspects. Number one, God's presence, God's presence. This is symbolized, obviously, as I mentioned, with the pillar of fire. The tongues of fire, it's signaling God's presence. This is God's way of saying in the ancient history, I'm marking out Sinai. Uh, the tabernacle is my dwelling place. Um, you as my people having these tongues of fire over you are my little temples. You all belong to me and I belong to you and we are together as one. This is this is absolutely breathtaking and beautiful and good. That This is God's way of saying my presence is with you. In other words, you have a place to belong. You are... You're not alone. You don't have to be isolated. Again, we live in a world that is just so profoundly isolated. There's hopes, utopian hopes that somehow the internet would bring us all together. But what we've actually found in living into this experiment of the internet and specifically social media is that it has not brought us together. It has actually made us even more alienated than ever. More depressed than we can ever imagine before thrown to that a three-year pandemic, and we are literally beyond comprehensiveness in our levels of anxiety and loneliness and our inner ache. And what Pentecost reminds us is it does not have to be so. That God's presence is here. God's presence is amidst his people. God loves you. God loves his people. He loves to show up and do great things. And Again, sometimes we might forget that. Sometimes we may lower our expectations so low. I feel like I just want to say to you, please don't underappreciate or value what God is up to. Sometimes it's easy to get so far along in life where we hope for something to happen and it never comes. And we pray for something to take place. It never takes place. We long for God's presence to revisit us. And it hasn't happened for a decade. And it's easy for us to give up. I just want to say to you, don't give up. Realign your expectations around who God is. Reimagine the power. Please recognize that what God did in the past, he can do again in the present and in the future. Like, don't lose hope in this God that has moved over all broken, fallen failed humanity, that he is still alive. The, the prayer, do it again, Lord. It's just been one that's on, been on my heart for the past few years. Like, do it again, Lord. You can do this again. You've visited before in the past. You've done amazing works in the past. Your your works have been on display in incredible, fashionable ways in the past. God, do it again. Move again in our midst. Like, I'm hungry for a move of God to reawaken people's hearts. I literally cannot imagine anything else that will rescue or save or transform broken marriages, broken lives, depressed human beings out of their states of anxiety and pain and ache. Nothing apart from the presence of God can do that. So the prayer, the the, the aching prayer, God, do it again, is something that my hope that all of us would be praying on a regular basis. God's temple would be not a temple of stones, but a people. Just think about that. You, as Peter would say, are living stones come together. You thought you were just coming to church. You thought you were just coming to a building to have to listen to a boring sermon with a guy that talks too fast. That's what you thought. That's what you thought. You have walked into the household of God. God's presence is here. God's presence is for you. You have a place to belong. It's powerful. It's powerful. This is the message of Pentecost. Secondly, we see Pentecost reacquaints us with God's power. You actually have access to strength. Again, I realize sometimes we can go through life in long, prolonged seasons sometimes with wounding and sometimes rapid-fire wounding where we begin to feel like I am powerless and I will forever chronically be acutely powerless. Powerless. And the hope of Pentecost, the story of Pentecost, reacquaints us with the power that God says is available to you right now. This is amazing. He says, you will have power. The word that he uses there, power, you will receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, is literally the word in in Greek, dunamis. And I usually don't throw down Greek words because I'm not a Greek scholar, but this is a great word. The word dunamis, you can obviously imagine what words, English words we derive from that. Dynamite being the biggest one. Dynamite, this explosiveness. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Pentecost reacquaints us with this reality that there is a power that's available to us. Again, everything in our culture says tap into your inner strength. But what happens if you do not have inner strength? What happens if you believe that storyline for as long as that storyline leads you to a place where it it ends in a dead end? Now what? Despair? Is that, all, is that all that's there? Is that all that's available for us as a menu of options? And I would suggest to you, Pentecost says, no. It's when you come to the end of yourself that you now find yourself stepping into this power that God has. The interesting thing about power is that power has historically been abused in so many different ways. We know this more so, I think, than ever before in our world today because we've seen, been acquainted with more forms of power abuse than ever before. I think a lot of that has to do with social media and just means of being able to make these things more public than ever before and people not being able to get away with stuff that they used to be able to get away with in secrecy. And in some ways, I'd say great. That's good. That's actually a good thing because it's revealing. It's ripping off the mask of power abusers. But what you oftentimes have is this idea of abuse of powers, whether it be those who do not have power, they feel themselves powerless and they long for it. Because somewhere in the framework of their understanding is like, if I can just have power, then I can overturn the tables of my oppressors and then I can become the powerful one that oppresses them. And that's just nothing more than recycling of power. It's the same thing. It's, just, it's literally the definition of what's happening in our world today. Or you have people that have power, and they use it as a means of abuse of others by taking advantage of them. And it's one of the reasons why you've had all forms of philosophical ideas and ideologies that have become very pre- predominant and popular in our world today. Um, specifically, most notably, Marxism is a way of basically addressing power. It's a way of looking at the power abuses amidst social classes and saying we have to do something about this. And the way that Marx suggested that power be it dealt with is to basically blow up the system because the system was framed by abusive power brokers. And so the only way that we can create a world of harmony and goodness or somehow where it's not basically exploiting other people is to just blow it up, to destroy it, to detonate it. But again, you can see how that's played out. Where, again, many ancient philosophers would recognize What you really need is a movement of goodness because power alone can never bring about utopia or help or hope in this world. Power that is in the hands of good people become a means to leverage the pain and suffering of other people and bring about good. Predominantly, we see that most notably clear in the person of Jesus because this is what we see that Jesus did. He steps into this world. He has all power. He's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, but he strips off him, the power from himself and allows himself to be oppressed and crushed and destroyed and tortured and crucified. But what power he had, he always used to leverage for the lives of other people. He used strength and power for the lives of other people. And this is what we see, that God gives us power not to be abused, but to realign our lives around him and to be a part of what he's up to in this world. And this ends with this last idea that not only do we see Pentecost reacquaint us with God's presence, God's power, but lastly, God's purposes. In other words, your life ultimately has meaning and worth as we find ourselves aligning with The work of God. Now, in general, just alone, even if you are straight up antagonistic towards everything that God is, your life still has value because you bear the image of God. You don't even have to be a follower of Jesus. Your life still has value. You matter as a human being. Period. What we realize is that God invites us to align our lives with his purposes in this world. And Pentecost reminds us that on our own, all that we are left with is groping in the dark, trying to figure out our own way forward, trying to fabricate and fashion our own lives and our own understanding of the way life should be. But ultimately, at the end of the day, those always leave us broken, and empty. But what God does, he says, I want to invite you into my purposes, which is one of the reasons why Jesus says, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, and Judea, and and Samaria, and other most parts of the world. This is God basically inviting us into saying, I have a purpose for you in this world, and I will empower you for that purpose in this world, to be about all that I've called you to be about. And as we do that, we then begin to find that meaning and worth is something we get to live into and experience. I wonder if one of the reasons why we have so much of a heightened awareness of anxiety and depression and grief in our world today like never before is because we're in this cycle of trying to make sense and bring meaning into our lives based upon ourselves. In other words, tapping into our inner self, our inner understanding, and saying, I am the only one that can actually determine what meaning and purpose and value in life is all about. And I would suggest to you that is a lie that cannot ultimately sustain you. It cannot help you. But what you can do is you can tap into the value and meaning and purpose and mission that God gives and then find your life ultimately fulfilled. And this is what Pentecost reminds us, that God is this missionary God. He's doing things in this world that are profound and beautiful and good and invites us be a part of that. So, lastly, and I'm going to show you a video and we're done. <clears throat> little video. Pentecost, ultimately, is, is it marks really the beginning of, of a whole new world where the outcast is honored, where the powerless are empowered, and the lost find their meaning and purpose, ultimately, in God's mission. This is what Pentecost reminds us of. That God came in this world and not only did something through His Son, Jesus died, rose again, communicated to his disciples, encouraged them to go to Jerusalem, to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them, and this Holy Spirit coming upon them, anointed them, empowered them, enabled them for his purposes to go into the world and begin to ultimately find true value and meaning and worth. And the Christian communities that went out from that particular place into all the world, went out doing good. Yes, there were moments in Christian history where it got perverted, and there was mission drift, and there were people that forgot about what Jesus ultimately did, and it became about more power play. Yes, Satan was really good at slipping in. You don't have to read very far in the book of Acts to realize it happened literally the next day or a week later. There was Ananias and Sapphira. They'd come bringing lies, and they died, all right? So the, the church has always been subject and prone towards drift. But that doesn't take away from the beauty of the mission that they've been invited into, that God invites us into as well. So I'm going to finish and have a little video play for you before, it, or as they're getting it set up. I want you to pay attention really carefully to the very first part because it, it jumps in it real quickly. So just in case you miss it, he's going to talk a little bit about anointing oil and how it's formed from the Garden of Eden. So I just want to set that up for you because I don't want you to miss the first, like, 10 seconds because it's really crucial. So here we go, video.
1: in the Bible involving fragrant plants and spices that make a rich oil to pour on special objects or people. This is called anointing oil. And its meaning is rooted in the story of the Garden of Eden, where God provided water for the dry land and formed the human, filling him with his spirit. This is the first anointing. The oil is a liquid symbol. It's the water of life and God's spirit combined together, used to mark a person or a place as a bridge between heaven and earth. During his wilderness exile, Jacob had a dream. He sees a stairway leading up to heaven. When he wakes, he anoints the stone on which he slept and called the place House of God, a place where heaven and earth are one. The Israelites built the tabernacle in the wilderness. When it was completed, they anointed the tent with oil, marking it as a place where God's heavenly presence has come down to earth. Israel's priests and their kings were anointed with oil to set them apart as leaders, to mediate God's heavenly wisdom to the world. But they rejected God's wisdom. They led with violence leading to ruin and exile. Their failure created hope for the ultimate anointed one. One anointed not merely with oil, but with water and spirit. Not merely a bridge to heaven, but heaven itself come to earth. This is Jesus Christ. More than a name, Christ is a title. It means anointed one. The new human, the ultimate priest, the cosmic king. God's heavenly life coming into our world in a new way. A surprising way. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he spread his anointing out into the world through his followers. Christians from the word Christ... Anointed ones who follow the anointed one. People marked by God's spirit so that more and more of earth can be filled with the life of heaven.
0: So that's the idea. God's presence becomes our source of his presence. Spirit, source of our presence in our lives, in this world power, and purpose. And that's what Pentecost reminds us of, of this vision, this mission that we've been called into. I want to invite you now to stand. We're going to close. I want to pray over you guys right now. And as we do, I want to just specifically invite you to ask God, what are those areas in your life that maybe you need a fresh awakening in your heart for the things of God? Maybe if there's areas in your life where you found brokenness or pain or loss or grief or powerlessness, ask God, God, you've made available to me your power, your future. God, breathe that into me. Speak that into me. Bring that into my life. And I pray over that, specifically over you. And as we finish, I'm going to We're going to create some more space if you need prayer for any other circumstances going on in your life. We want to pray for you, but I'll talk about that in two seconds. But let me pray for us right now. And if you would like, why don't you just put out your hands as a posture of saying, God, I want to receive from you. So, Father, this morning right now, we just come to you. We recognize with our hands open, we have nothing to bring. We do have open hands that says we want to receive. You're the life giver. You offer goodness, you offer healing, you offer wholeness, you offer purpose, your power, your presence. And I ask you, Father, right now that because you know all the circumstances in my life right now, would you come and move in fresh, creative ways in those areas where I need it most? If you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you have never really truly trusted Jesus, my invitation to you would be to call upon God's name, ask him, God, would you just wash me, cleanse me, forgive me? It's as simple as that. And Jesus will meet you right where you're at. And so, Father, I pray right now for us as a community, help us to live into the mission that you've called us to live. God, we have neighbors, friends, coworkers, family members that are far from you. And we ask, God, that you would just move over their lives, draw them into a place of relationship with you and transformation as a result of you. God, give us strength and courage, backbone, power, to stand up and speak truth, but also to do so with, with bold love. And we can't do that apart from you. So, Holy Spirit, come and fall afresh upon your church. Do it again, Lord. Revive in this day great works that you've done in the past that you are even doing around the world right now. We know, God, there are places on this planet that are just nothing short of receiving straight-up visitation from your presence. Revival, renewal, restoration, healing. God, we long for that in this place. Bring it to the Central Coast. Bring it to this place. Bring revival, Lord. Start with me. And so, God, as we scatter now, empower us by your Holy Spirit to be all that you call us to be. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.